That's on page 977 of the Bibles provided. Ephesians 3, 7 through 13. The Apostle Paul says this, and really be attentive. It's the Word of God, so really listen to it. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. You know, when you read a great book or you see a great movie or watch a great miniseries or show, I mean, doesn't it make you kind of long to be a part of a really great story? I think there's something in us that God has made that when we see a great story, we resonate with it because as God's people, we are part of the greatest story being told. John Stott says that as the gospel spreads throughout the world, a new and variegated Christian community develops. It's as if a great drama is being enacted. History is the theater, the world is the stage, and church members in every land are the actors. God has written the play, and he directs and produces it. Act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. And what is that story? What is that drama that God is telling? The world's the theater, or the world's the stage, history's the theater, church members in the land are the act. What's the story? What's the drama? Paul tells us in verse 10 of chapter 3, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is to be displayed. That is the story that God is writing in the world. The ultimate purpose of us as the church and all of God's people as the universal church and our unique expression as a local church here in Owensboro is to display the manifold wisdom of God. Manifold refers to being richly diversified, multifaceted, highly variegated, infinite diversity. God's saving wisdom is being displayed gloriously through his church. Russ Moore writes the following, what, is, what the church is about is about demonstrating and showing the manifold, multi-splendored wisdom of God. The church is not just, get this, a group of people who have been born again who are incorporating themselves together in order to do things. 
The church is a gathering together by Jesus Christ, gifting them and demonstrating what it is that he plans to do in the fullness of time with the entire universe. End quote. The church is God's primary mission strategy that seeks to live out the values of the king. The church is the outpost of the kingdom. When people look at the church, at our local church, they should say, wow, this life reminds me of the kingdom. Every local church is to be on earth as it is in heaven. Big calling, isn't it? That's a huge calling. And God wants to display his wisdom and power and glory through a new multiracial transcultural community of believers in which Jew and Gentiles are co heirs of the promises that God makes known in his wisdom. The church visibly testifies to God's wisdom by its very existence. No other organization on earth, neither government nor educational institution or a civic club can accomplish this purpose. So what then becomes the display of God's wisdom when the church is fractured and segregated and fails to be integrated? And that's why Paul is writing and reminding the Ephesian church. You remember, the last several weeks we've been going through this whole issue that's going on in Ephesus that's also very real in our own day. Racial reconciliation and the problem of churches with very different people being able to get along with each other and work together and live together and fellowship together and be on mission together. And so Paul reminds the Ephesians and spends a good part of chapter 2 And this whole part of chapter 3, reminding them of what God is up to in making the church this way. And it's so that his multifaceted glory, the display of his wisdom, might be made known. To whom? To the world? Well, that's certainly true, but that's not what Paul says here in the passage. Notice verse 10 again. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities... In the heavenly places, angelic beings, specifically in this context, demonic spirits. In this way, when the church is what the church should be, it preaches a sermon. And it preaches a sermon to an audience that we're not even aware of most of the time. It preaches a sermon to the universe about what God is doing in his wisdom. And in this way, angelic beings are provided with a tangible reminder, especially those fallen spirits, that their authority has been decisively broken, and indeed, like all things, they have too been made subject to Christ. The makeup of the church isn't just about the witness we're giving to the outside world, although it is. God intends for the church to serve a larger, indeed, cosmic purpose in spreading his glory. The purpose for the church extends far beyond its internal ministries. The church is to be a sign, an outpost of the kingdom of God, of what things are going to be when Christ returns to make all things new. 
Kent Hughes says that we have a far bigger and more observant viewing audience than many of us even realize. Again, Russell Moore says, When Satan sees a group of people who are gathered together with the dividing wall torn down, who have nothing else in common except the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit, the devil trembles. The devil doesn't tremble at crowds and programs. He trembles at Jesus. And when you have a group of people who are united in one body with a head in heaven, then the rulers and authorities who exist to kill and destroy, they observe their downfall. They observe their downfall. Brothers and sisters, church is spiritual warfare. Being a part of the church is spiritual warfare. It has way more to do with just our witness to the outside world. And we spend most of our time trying to figure out how we're going to get along and how we're going to work together. When, when one huge step toward that is just to remember that most of the church, if we haven't realized this already, isn't white, it isn't American, and it never has, nor will it speak English. And that's true on earth and in heaven. God is doing a worldwide thing to display his wisdom. And the existence of the church demonstrates to the powers that they are in fact powerless to impede the progress of the gospel and consequently destroy the church, the body of Christ, which they thought they already had done. Tony Marita says that if you're a part of the church, then you are part of a cosmic sermon that is being preached to spiritual rulers and authorities. So the question that I want to answer in our sermon this morning is I want, to, I want to talk about how. How do we, as the church, as this particular church, how do we become a more vivid, lively, accurate display of God's wisdom to our own community? How does the church become a people through whom God displays his wisdom? How do we get to the place where this body of Christians becomes a signpost for the coming kingdom of God? where on earth as it is in heaven is becoming an increasingly visible reality. And I'm taking that as my main point of my sermon because of what Paul says at the beginning of verse 10. He says, so that. In other words, the purpose of his ministry and the way he's doing it, the way he's going about doing his ministry, he now is entrusting to the church so that the church will model what he has done and display God's wisdom. So we learn a lot in verses 7 through 13 about how we are to go about doing this. All right? And I have six of them, and we're just going to go through them one at a time. How do we, as a people, more and more grow so that we can display God's wisdom? Because everybody up for that? Is that what you want to be about? That's what we have to be about as the church. Otherwise, we're fighting God, and he will de-church us. All right? So we have got to be about this. this. We have to line ourselves up with God's purpose for the church and what God wants to get done through the church. And as we do that, we will see God's presence, power, and blessing upon us. So here's the first one. If, a church, if our church is going to be a display of God's wisdom, it has to depend on God's grace. We have to depend on God's grace. Notice what Paul says in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me 
by the working of his power. We know where we get power from. It's not from our efforts. It's not from what we do. It's not from what we say. It's not from what we can come up with. It's from God's grace and God's grace alone. And we start there. We have to depend on God's grace. Paul did. What is God's grace? Grace in this context is not, he's not referring to God's saving grace. He's not talking about how God saved Paul. Rather, he's referring to his calling as an apostle, how God called him. Notice, God's grace here is the endowment of gracious ability and desire which enabled Paul to fulfill his apostolic vocation as a preacher to the Gentiles. It was God's grace that did that, not Paul's effort, as Jonathan reminded us last week. Grace operates and flows out of divine power. Paul traced the origin of his call to the ministry as an operation of God's divine power and grace. And he did this throughout his life. He says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul always knew where his power came from. It came from God and his grace. It was not his own doing. His ministry was not his own doing. His achievements were not the result of his choice of God, but God's choice of him. It was a result of of God's grace, God's call, God's enabling power. And that's where we too have to start and stay. We have to stay with God and his grace. Because after all, the church is a display of God's wisdom, not ours. So, The giver gets the glory. And if God's giving the power, if God's giving the grace, if God's affecting the life change, guess who the credit goes to? If we're doing it, if we're manufacturing it, there's trouble brewing. To have a church where people are reconciled to God and reconciled to one another across deep cultural, socioeconomic, and generational divides, believe me, takes a work of divine power. And if it happens, it'll be a result of God's grace. This is not something that man can create. Man can create superficial unity. Man can create liking. Man can create toleration. Man cannot create authentic love, service, where people, where the world, where we are a complete confusion to the world because we're being led by people that the world doesn't ascribe as leaders. We're being where there's deference and love and forgiveness toward what should be inferior and superior relationships, where generational divides don't exist, where socioeconomic divides, even though they're there and present, they don't matter, and where cultural and ethnic divides should exist and they don't. Here's just a principle. Write this one down. If men can explain it, God probably didn't do it. If men can explain it, God probably didn't do it. God is interested in building a church which is a fellowship of difference. Not difference, but different people. Difference. D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-T-S. Different people united in one body, and that is something only he can do. So we must depend on God's grace for that. Paul certainly did. Paul certainly did, and we must do the same. Secondly, we must exemplify humility. 
we must exemplify humility. Notice verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To me. Now, Paul is not just, you know, beating himself up. He's actually describing the way he really feels when he assesses his call in light of his worthiness. When he assesses his call to be a preacher to the Gentiles, instead of in his natural Jewish state, something that he would be abominate, are you, how, what are you talking, I'm a Jewish man, I'm a Jewish, you're going to, I mean, for a natural Jewish man to be called into ministry of the Gentiles is like being demoted. I mean, it's like, okay, well, you're going to have to go take out the trash. But he didn't look at it that way. He said it's pure privilege. He saw it as absolutely pure privilege. He didn't even deserve that. He didn't even deserve to what to the Jews would be taken out the garbage. He says, I am the least. And he actually puts a, a, a weird word together here in the Greek. He says, I'm the leaster. I'm the leaster of all the saints. If there was a least, I'm more least than them. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. He says, no one is more of a candidate who should have been disqualified from the kingdom than me. Of all the people who make up the church right now, I'm the last. If the church were a graduating class of 375 and we were ranked according to our worthiness to graduate, I would be number 375, maybe 376. I mean, this is his posture because he exemplifies humility. He says it again in other places, of course. First Timothy chapter 1 is a famous text where he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. Listen, what, is, what does this posture do for Paul? It means that everything that he's doing is not about him and his preferences and him, his wants because he doesn't deserve anything. If the church is all about us and our wants, it will never be about God and what he wants. But what if our greatest desire, every single one of us, was to view ourselves and to act as the very least of all God's people? Then we would feel shunned by nothing and be privileged by everything. What is your greatest desire for Heritage Baptist Church as a member of Heritage? Is it that you would have the preaching, worship, ministries, and cultural feel that you enjoy? That we would be like we were 15 years ago? Or that we would be a people who right now in this moment in history, by God's grace and for God's glory, begin to live to display his multifaceted wisdom? to the principalities and powers in heavenly realms. And we get there by exemplifying humility. Paul got there by exemplifying humility. What is humility? It's fundamentally Philippians 2, right? Considering other interests more important than your own. Paul considered the interests of these Gentiles and how they would be treated in Ephesus by these Jewish Christians as more important than whether or not he was going to get fed in prison that night. He spends his time writing a letter to a church to try to get them racially reconciled while he's in prison, brothers and sisters. 
He's not sitting in the shiny palace. It's like, oh, don't bother me with those Ephesian Christians again. There they are arguing. Would somebody, send, would they, somebody tell them to shut up? No, he spends time writing a letter where he pours his heart out to them, reminding them of God's purpose and acknowledging that he's the least of all the saints while he sits in jail, reminding them that he doesn't deserve to be a minister to them. If that's not humility and if that's not putting others ahead of your own interest, I don't know what is. And really, this comes down to how we view our role as a member of the church, doesn't it? I mean, our fundamental role as a church member, specifically thinking about worship, when we gather together for worship, which is just one dimension of our life together. It's an important dimension, but it's just one. When we gather together for worship, our fun, do you enter in with a posture of humility? And by that, do I mean, do you believe Colossians 3.16? It says we are to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which means that the fundamental thing that we're doing in worship is we're not coming to be spoken to, we're coming to speak. We are coming to get work done ourselves to our fellow brothers and sisters, not to see what our fellow brothers and sisters might be able to give to us today. I mean, it's reciprocal, right? It happens that way, but it's, it's a fundamental orientation of your perspective and heart. Is your perspective and heart First and foremost, how can I build up, speak, encourage? Because that's what the apostle wants in Colossians 3.16, is that we come to worship with a word to share, to speak. We come to speak, not just merely to be spoken to. We are crucifying our own preferences so as to count others and their preferences as more important than our own. Russell Moore again says, when, when, when we will start to see the Spirit at work in our church is not when we have factions that exist, but when we have that 75-year-old lady who comes in and says, you know, I like this music, but I don't think those drums are loud enough. And when you have that 22-year-old college student who says, you know, I like this music, but we really need to have more Fanny Crosby for our senior adults. When we start seeing this happening, as people start counting other people as more important than themselves, that's when we're going to see the Spirit moving us toward this picture. It takes a long time, Russell Moore says. Sanctification always does. (laughs) But it has to start with people who are willing to seek for it. Are you willing to seek for it? I hope you are. So we have to depend on God's grace. We have to exemplify humility. That, because that's getting us out of the picture, isn't it? It's getting us out of the way. We're active. We're engaged. I mean, Paul's laboring. He's working hard. He's not saying, oh, it's all up to God's grace. I guess I'll just do nothing. No, he's laboring. He's dying to self, crucifying his preferences, laying his life down for Jesus, taking up his cross, denying himself, laboring for Christ. And in the whole meantime, he's doing it so for one purpose, so that this church will display God's wisdom. And he knows in order for it to display God's wisdom, he has to get out of the way. Number three, we must preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. We don't preach ourselves. We don't preach what we're doing. We preach about Jesus. What does Paul preach? Notice verse 8 again. This grace was given to preach 
to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. He says, this is what we preach. This is the message. This is what it's all about. The unsearchable riches of Christ. That's our message. Those words are packed. Unsearchable. What does that mean? Unfathomable. Beyond comprehension. Inexhaustible. Beyond the grasp of human understanding. In, illimitable. Inexplorable. Inscrutable. Christ and His glory is unsearchable. It's endless. It's infinite. And we preach Him. We preach a person. We don't preach a method of church. We don't preach a style. We don't preach a culture. We preach a person. And that person is Christ Himself and the riches of His person. Not the riches that we get from His person, the riches of Him. He's the point. I mean, the big thing that is going to display God's wisdom in our church is when people see Christ all over us, hear Him from us, sense Him in us, where we are reminders of Jesus to each other and to this community and to the principalities and powers which will cause them to tremble. So we proclaim Him, Colossians 1.29. We proclaim Christ and Him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2. I wish I had time to just unpack the unsearchable riches of Christ. I could spend five sermons on that. Way more. I'd love to do that. Maybe we'll do that in the future. We'll just preach a whole sermon series called The Unsearchable Riches of Christ and just mine him out for six months. But for right now, with time, I can't do it. But if we could just grasp something of his riches, and this is what we have to be reminded of week in and week out. I mean, I see my main role. I know Pastor Jonathan sees his main role. All your pastors see it this way. But our main role is to give Jesus to you. We're not your Savior. You know that. You need Christ. I need Christ. More than life and breath and anything. But we want to open up from text after text, and not just us, but you, in your sphere of influence, in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. We want Christ to radiate from all of us. The riches of His person, the riches of His deity, His eternality, His never-changing constancy, His wisdom, His authority, His providence, His word, His power, His purity, His trustworthiness, His justice, His patience, His sovereignty, His servant obedience, His meekness, His lowliness, His tenderness, His wrath, His grace, His love, His severity, His invincibility, His dignity, His simplicity, His complexity, His resoluteness, His calmness, His depth, His courage, His inexhaustible gladness. We must know the riches of his person, who he is. So that means, church, we've got to press on to know the Lord. We have to press on to know Christ. Charles Spurgeon says, My master has riches, you know. Beyond the eloquence of words, beyond the dream of imagination, beyond the count of arithmetic, and beyond the measurement of reason, they are unsearchable. You may look and study and weigh, but when your thoughts are at the greatest, Jesus is a greater Savior than you think Him to be. My Lord is more ready to pardon than you to sin, 
more able to forgive than you to transgress. My master is more willing to supply your needs than you are to ask for them. Never tolerate low thoughts of my Lord Jesus. When you put the crown on his head, you'll only crown him with silver when he deserves gold. My master has riches of happiness to bestow upon you now. He can make you lie down in green pastures and lead you beside still waters. There is no love like his. Neither earth nor heaven can match it. To know Christ and be found in him. Oh, this is life. This is joy. This is marrow and fatness, wine on the leaves, well refined. My master does not treat his servants begrudgingly. He gives to them as a king gives to a king. He gives to them two heavens, a heaven below and serving them here and a heaven above and delighting in him forever. That's the riches of Christ. And that's what we must not only know, but savor and taste and enjoy. Because I'll tell you what, a lot of people in our community know something about Jesus. They don't know Jesus. And they don't know him with power and experience from a daily cultivated walk with him in humility, independence upon grace. As we mine through the scriptures, morning by morning, searching out the unsearchable riches of Christ, learning more of him in this book. Tony Marita says, we should never talk about Jesus without passion. Proclaim the riches of Christ to your own soul daily and out of the overflow of your communion with him, declare his glory to others. That's what Paul did. That's what we must do. So number one, we depend on God's grace. Number two, we exemplify humility. Number three, we proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. Number four, we must be convinced that this is God's purpose. We must be convinced this is God's purpose. Notice verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is, the, the, the manifold display of the wisdom of God through the church is according to the purpose of of God that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we must be convinced, brothers and sisters, that this is our purpose. Because this is God's purpose. So in order to be about what God wants us to be about, we've got to conv- be convinced that's what he wants us to be about, right? And that is what he wants us to be about because it's according to his own purpose. Verse 11. So I want to ask a question. If we're convinced that this is what God desires and what he is bringing to pass, then we need to throw our collective weight behind it and labor to see it actualized. I think we need to assess the purpose of our lives in light of it. I mean, I get it, okay? We have families, we have jobs, we have callings, we have hobbies, we have various responsibilities that we're all involved in. But let me ask you this question. How does the church factor in with the way you assess the relative priority of all of your other responsibilities? Are you committed to forming your life and the life of your family in and through the church? Because if that's what God is about, if he's about the display of his manifold wisdom through the church, then to not be a, not just a part of the church, but, a, but integrated into the very life of it at every level is to thwart that display. It's to, it's to, put, a, it's, it's to put a fog over it. It can't be accurately seen. So I think this means for some of us in this room today, I mean, have you joined a church? The New Testament knows no Christians that aren't members of local churches. And I'm not, uh, membership does not mean you sit your, you know, rear end in a seat here. That's not membership. Membership means you've taken a membership class. You've met with elders. 
You've shared your testimony. You've covenanted together to be a part of this body of believers. And if you should ever depart from here, that you'll go covenant yourself to another local church. Because that's what Christians do. That's what Christians do. It's not what Christians in America do, but it's what Christians do. I don't mean is your name on a church roll somewhere. I mean, have you an intention, if you're not a member of a church, to join one? I'm not saying it has to be ours. We're not the only faithful church in this community. There are plenty of them. We just want you to be a part of one. And we don't want you to just have your name on a roll somewhere. We want you to be connected vitally to those people. Because here's the deal. Joining a church makes a really countercultural statement. And that's why it's a display of God's wisdom. It makes a really countercultural statement. What's, what statement does it make? I'm committed to this group of people, and they're committed to me. I'm here to give more than get. It's about making a decision and sticking with it, something my generation, with our oppressive number of choices, finds very difficult. It says, I'm all in. I'm in. Talk about countercultural. Can't get anybody to commit to anything. We prefer to date the church, have her around for a few special events, take her out when she feels lonely, keep her around for a rainy day. But membership is all about, look, I'm done dating the church. Church, I'm ready to marry one. I'm ready to marry it. We really want you to be a countercultural revolutionary. That's our great desire for you as a Christian. You are, if you're a Christian, you're a countercultural revolutionary. Now we're just calling you to live in step with it. Be more countercultural. And for the vast majority of us who are members of, our, of this local church, those of you who are gathered here this morning, we always have to be willing, humbly, because we've got to exemplify humility, right? We've got to be willing, humbly, to ask ourselves, is the church... If God's purpose is so central and the church is such a central part of God's purpose, then are the way that I'm making decisions, the way I'm, my family's making decisions, is, is it compromising the centrality that the local church should have in my life? When thinking about what you will give your time to, your attention to, your energy to, your commitment to, where does the church land in that degree of priorities? I mean, as Justin said at the beginning, we really want four things of our members. We want you to gather with us, which means we want you here on Sunday with us. We want you at the Lord's Supper, taking the Lord's Supper together with us, because that's a vital part of what a church does. We want you to grow, which means we want you to take advantages of things that we as your pastors and other members of this church labor in and pray over for ways that we can serve you effectively and help your growth. When we labor and we're thoughtful over a class, for instance, for Disciple You, which by the way, we, we don't, we're not just throwing stuff together. We take input from our church. We think through it as elders together. What, is, what, what would serve and feed and help our church grow in this season? And we see 15 people there. It's discouraging. Now, what I'm saying is, we don't expect you to be at every single Disciple U class ever, okay? But what we do expect you to is at least know what they are. How many of you can name the three that are coming up in June right now? 
And I'm not saying that to guilt you, okay? Really, I'm not. I'm just saying, let's assess our present level of engagement, right? We got so much stuff going through our brains. I know, it's a struggle, all right? But we, we think, okay, the church is communicating to me. Something's going on. I at least need to know about it. I need to be aware of it. I mean, it's just, it's just disheartening when, as we walk around or as we interact with people and there's no clue. I know we're busy, we're fragmented. It's a challenge of our age. I get that, okay? But we can all, by God's grace, work harder at it. And that's what I'm calling us to do is just be more thoughtful about it. When you see communication from the church, you may not be able to read it now. That's okay. We don't expect you to stop your life every time you get an email from HBC. Keep doing what you're doing. Just please get around to it. I know for I, for one, and, and I think all, I speak for all of our pastors, we just don't want to inundate you with communication and email. You know, check Facebook page, get updates, figure out what's going on. Say, I don't have Facebook. That's okay. You can still check our page. Okay. Heritage Baptist Church Owensboro Facebook. Just click on it. And there's, there's information and stuff that's coming uh, for you that we're seeking to serve. So gathering, growing. We want you to grow. We want you to take advantage of things that are going to help you spiritually to grow. We want you to give. We want you to give of time, talents, and treasure. Money and ministry. We want you to give your heart to Jesus and to his people. That's it. We don't want your money. We need a certain level to keep things, to keep the lights on around here and to keep me from having to be evicted from my house because <laughs> I can't pay my rent. But, and you all are very generous and very gracious as a community about supporting your pastors, and that's not what the sermon's about. But it's more about what spiritual good is going to come to you as a result of you having a generous heart. That's all. That's all. It's about... It's about your generous heart and cultivating Christ in you. That's what ministry is about. And then we want you to go. We want you to, we want you to share the gospel with others in our community. We want you to befriend non-Christians. We want you to, and we don't want you to do it on your own because you can't do it on your own. So that's why we called you into community groups so that you can do it together with help and mutual gifting and, you know, people who are stronger at different things than you. So you don't have to be Jesus to people. <laughs> You're not. That's why you need the body of Christ. And that's why we've called you to that. So we just, the point here is that how can we treat the church lightly or superficially if God takes it so seriously? That's my point, right? How can we push the church to the circumference of our lives when God has placed it at the center of his so if the church is at the center of God's heart, shouldn't it be at the center of our heart as his people? I think so. Two, very quickly, and I'm going to try to spend one minute on each one, and then we'll wrap up and be done. So we've seen, we've seen that in order to display God's wisdom, we have to depend on God's grace, exemplify humility, preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, Commit our, commit our lives to build our lives around the purpose of the church. And then 12 and 13 have two more. Here's the fifth one. We must pray. Paul says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Says, Paul says, if that's the purpose of God, to display his wisdom through the church, 
And that's his eternal purpose in Christ Jesus our Lord that I'm going to pray it into reality. I am going to pray it into reality. In whom, this Christ Jesus our Lord, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. That's good news, isn't it? I mean, this is like free approach. No barriers. No veil. Straight into the Holy of Holies, we can talk to God. And we have his ear and his interest. And so that gives us great hope that as we're about the work of the church and as we labor in the church, as we pray for the prosperity of the church, its health, its well-being, its vibrancy, its effectiveness, that God will hear and God will answer because his heart is engaged to those kind of prayers. That's all I'm going to say about that. In verse 13, we have to be willing to persevere because it's hard work. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I ask you not to lose heart for what I am suffering for you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that an amazing statement? Paul doesn't say to the church, I'm really struggling to not lose heart here in jail as I'm writing to you. Would you pray for me? He says, no, church, I ask you to not lose heart for my suffering. Don't feel bad about me. Don't lose heart over that. He said, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. This is for your glory. He says, I'm laboring so that you can actually get to glory one day and so that in this life, in the meantime, you will more and more display the glory of God as a community of believers. This is what I am about. So Paul's willing to persevere, isn't he? And we have to be willing to persevere because it's hard work. This is a story that we're living in. The greatest story ever told. The story of God displaying his manifold wisdom to the principalities and powers. Do you not think that the hosts of heaven and hell, specifically the hosts of hell here, are against us in that pursuit? I mean, the work of the church is the hardest work in the world. And you're a part of that work. It's not, we're we're in this together as a part of this mission to grow together, to gather together, to give together, to go together. That's why we're here. That's what we exist to do and be. And by God's grace, we have to be willing to suffer for it. And the goal is worth the price. The goal is worth the price. So before I pray, church, let's pray these things into reality that we will display God's glory, grow in our ability to display God's manifold wisdom as we exemplify humility, as we depend on God's grace, as we preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, as we hold to his eternal purpose, as we pray, and as we're willing to persevere through suffering to make it happen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the high calling we have as a member of the body of Christ. It's such a privilege, God. It doesn't feel like a privilege because it's hard. It's hard. And the things that we experience as difficult, as time-consuming, as flesh-withering, is hard. And we just confess that to you, God. We We remain sinners. Though in our status before you, we are justified, we are forgiven... We are acquitted, we are accepted, we are adopted, we are loved, we are prized, we are delighted in, we are even cherished. 
Nevertheless, in this life, in this body, in, in, a, in a body of believers, there is enough friction and enough struggle and enough hardship and heartache that calls us to persevere. And we thank you for the high, high goal that we have. We pray that you would help us to more and more as a people and your whole church universal all around the world would be a greater and greater display of your glorious, multifaceted, manifold wisdom to our world and to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. We pray for his glory in his name. Amen. Stand to our feet.